Welcome. You're listening to Amped Up, the Ampo podcast. I'm Ellen Zaviska, Transportation Planning Manager with Ampo, which is the Association of Metropolitan Planning Organizations. For this podcast, I'm speaking with Seth Lejeunesse, Senior Research Associate with the Highway Safety Research Center at the University of North Carolina. And I'm not going to do any other introduction because my first question to Seth will be, tell us what you do and how you got into this work. Thanks, Ellen. Uh, what I do is do research on transportation safety, as well as how that intersects with transportation health and community livability. So for the most part, my research focuses on how we create a safe system for all road users, and especially for those who are operating outside of vehicles, walking, biking, uh, rolling, that sort of thing. And what what led you to get to get into this? What was your what's your origin story? Ooh, my origin story. I like that. Every uh, villain has one. Yeah, right. In my prior life, I was actually practicing as a school psychologist, and I had been working with with kids who had uh, developmental delays, also behavioral issues. One of the themes that they kept emerging from that work was that they didn't really feel part of the the broader community. Often they were, a lot of the kids I worked with were scared due to crime concerns, concerns over traffic, to really, you know, be part of the, the broader uh, community of, of folks in the neighborhoods. And it got me thinking around the types of communities and who basically, who decides what a community looks like and feels like and who it functions for. And I, I started recognizing that kids, adolescents, people with disabilities often were not involved with a lot of the decision-making that went around community building and revitalizations. That got me interested in, in city planning. So I did go back to school at UNC, the Department of City Regional Planning, to, to study particularly transportation systems, because I saw that as sort of a critical junction with how people interface with cities, communities. And it just got led me into even learning about the Highway Safety Research Center, where I am now. And I got involved with the Safe Routes to School movement. I started working at the National Center for Safe Routes to School and working on the data side of things, like how kids get to and from school and what are some of the significant barriers to doing those activities. And just all of the, the sort of multi-solving potential in a way of just how walking and biking to school could help address so many uh, issues that communities face, where it, whether it be air quality issues, uh, public health traffic safety, so many intersecting uh, realities. And I thought, this is definitely my jam, if you will. Uh, once I started diving in and learning more about how practitioners and others are trying to, and advocates, are trying to make things better uh, for their communities. So I've seen this before where Safe Routes to School is kind of a gateway drug into this, into this work, if you will. But it, it, and it makes sense to me because it's it's something that you know maybe as a, a parent or an educator or even a or even a, a student you might get involved with and you go why is it so difficult to slow down traffic get a crosswalk get a bike lane blah 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 have have you seen a lot of that where where safe routes to school is an entry point into learning about the greater transportation system and how it functions or doesn't function that is a great frame Ellen yeah I totally agree. Um... I have witnessed myself, and I'm sure lots of other people uh, listening have probably witnessed this too, is 
people who wouldn't otherwise be thinking about the transportation systems and all the decisions and the bureaucracies right, involved in uh, the decision-making process. They, they, the entry point is, yeah, that trip to school, the trip home from school. They start learning about, well, even road ownership, transportation funding and financing. They start peeling back the layers of how the system works, why we can't get a crosswalk here. Why does it take so long? Right. Why? Why does it take so long to get a signal change? Right. Things that are pretty relatively technically simple, just the decisions and all of the approvals and the policies in place. I think people start demystifying the process a bit and that gets them. I've seen many cases where people start getting involved larger in community organizing into. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, it becomes the gateway to greater investment in the political process and right having getting more people involved in that to shape their own communities. Right, right. So one of the things I understand that you're working on there at, at UNC, the Highway Safety Research Center, is Vision Zero, studying Vision Zero in the U.S. Um, I hope our listeners are familiar with Vision Zero, but of course it's that, it's that notion that we're going to focus on a transportation system that doesn't result in any fatalities or serious injuries. It seems like that ought to be the focus, but you know, oftentimes it's other things like moving traffic and economic development, things like that. But you've been studying Vision Zero in the U.S. What what's your take on how it's going? How they're making use of of crash data and other data sources? What do, what are you seeing out there? Great question. Yeah, I've been tracking it probably since I would say since it arrived in the U.S. Uh, that would be around 2014. When it sort of arrived on my radar and, and a colleague's radar, this is when New York City sort of, you know, basically erected their program. I heard of San Francisco there soon thereafter. Even before that, I learned that Chicago is doing something similar to Vision Zero, probably a little bit before 2014. And one of the things that we've been tracking is just the level of adoption of Vision Zero in the States. It's been remarkable. If, if anyone that listens, studies, or is familiar with diffusion theory, uh, Vision Zero is something that is definitely diffused, meaning that at first there was a few entities like New York City, San Francisco, for example. Now we have dozens of communities across the country doing this. It sort of hit a critical mass probably a couple of years ago, which means it becomes self-organizing. It hits that maybe 15 to 20% adoption and now I think we're probably around 40 or 50% adoption. of, And this is cities that probably have sufficient resources to do meaningful Vision Zero work. And when you ask question around how it's going, I think Vision Zero is running an uphill battle, if you will. There's lots of things that municipalities are doing, like lowering their posted speed limits, investing a lot in sort of reshaping the, the built environment to afford safer travel doing things like curb extensions, putting in protected bike lanes, you know, improving their pedestrian crossings. There's a lot of things that are running counter to that, like what we're seeing with the purchasing of ever more larger, heavier, more powerful vehicles on the SUV and truck side of things, right? They have higher horsepower than they've ever had historically. And you see still a lot of departments of transportation that not that don't necessarily coordinate very well with the cities within them that are on a you know they have an agenda basically to uh, move goods and people across their state in between states 
So they're investing in highway systems that aren't exactly always aligned with the needs of a city, right? When you have a higher order function like a, a highway, which is all built around mo fast mobility, cities aren't designed for harboring fast mobility. Speeds need to come down in cities, right? Because the cities are should be designed more toward access. It should be so much slower vehicle traffic, many more modal options in cities, right? So I think while we have investment on the state side and the federal side as well in sort of speed and efficient travel, cities are trying to counter that uh, with investments in, in safety and safe mobility. Um, and so I guess one of the questions I always have and colleagues I know do have is what would what would the safety record in cities look like had they not engaged in Vision Zero? And I would wager that if they did not take a stand, they did not pass resolutions, they did not spend any money or any of their resources on improving built environments and safety policies, that it would be far worse than what we see today. Uh, so it's, I think it's not going great in most places. There's a couple of examples that are, is going really well, like in, like in Jersey City, New Jersey, where they focused on uh, the daylighting of intersections, right? Improving sight lines uh, so that people can see each other, their crashes and, and injuries have gone down. There's definitely other places that are doing well, but for the most part, as you know, the trends are not heading in, in a positive direction right now. So I think there needs to be a more concerted effort. I think you said at the outset, Ellen, to change the paradigm to one that's all about level of service and driver delay to one where we talk about managing speeds, especially that are, you know, so that when things go wrong, because inevitably they will, that it doesn't end in serious injury or death. So what, one of the big elements of Vision Zero oftentimes is, is, is looking at data around crashes and other things. What are are, are there are there cities or regions that are doing a great job of that that you've seen? So by data, I think a lot of uh, what we're seeing, the dominant form of data used is crash data, and that's police reported crash data. Um, a good example of a sort of a system, I think, would be in, in Washington, D.C., where they have a, a dashboard now that is updated very frequently and shows where their serious and fatal uh, injuries on the network occur, as well as what the city's response to that is. They publish this online. Denver also has a really good system on using crash data to report out where they're having issues and then have different policy and sort of environmental interventions in response to those. You see cities where I think one, right now, one of the most common ways of characterizing safety is what, what is called the high injury network. You may have seen this where they map where, you know, a disproportionate number of serious and fatal injuries are, are occurring on their network. And then they devote resources to those locations. What I'm most excited about is actually seeing what's happening in places like Oregon, where they're actually taking not only crash reported data, they're, they're police reported crash data, they're looking at risk on the network as well. So the places that have multiple lanes, maybe some skewed intersections, because we know crash angles at above 90 degrees are real, can be very dangerous, especially at certain speeds. So they're looking at 
in a more proactive way in, in Oregon and in Washington state, basically the Pacific Northwest. And there are some places like in Utah where, and in North Carolina uh, as well, where they're linking police reported data with emergency data and getting a much better profile of the injury outcomes. Because let's face it, police officers are not diagnosticians. They have much better diagnoses from the emergency departments. We get a much better sense too. And especially on the pedestrian bicycle side, we know that at least half, the, 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 the estimates vary across the country, but at least half of these pedestrian bicycle crashes are not reported to police and police reported crashes. So we, it's like they don't exist basically if you're just focusing on police reported crashes. They, people end up at the hospital. You know, they might have fled the scene. They may not be interested in drawing the attention of law enforcement, whatever it may be, but they end up injured in the emergency rooms. And we, we get that data later, often not knowing where it happened. But basically, I think cities are starting to recognize that it's not only police reported crashes, that we also have the injury data from our emergency departments and trauma centers, as well as just an inherent risk on the network. We know, especially if we can learn from where we have documented crashes, where they cluster, the, those environmental features, we can look at the broader network and say, well, we have these same features on the, these parts of the network, and we can be proactive and start addressing those before anything terrible happens. We're starting to see a move toward that, and I think we're definitely trying to promote that as well. Yeah, I love to see that that proactive work because, you know, the, the crashes that happen and especially the crashes that get reported, you know, there's too many of them, of course, but they are still few and few, few and far between. And there's, 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 yeah, you, you need to look at what the road roadway characteristics are, the intersection characteristics. And I, I really love to see the data linkage too, with that, the hospital data. And I, when I, back when I was with an MPO did some of that work myself, trying to look at the hospital. And it's hard. It's hard getting hold of that hospital data. Mm -hmm. Was able to partner with the State Department of Health to do that because they were able to get that data and look at it in a way that was disaggregate. And they could actually link up a hospital record to a crash. And they found that same disparity you mentioned. It was like 40, 50% under reporting. And you mentioned reasons that people may not want to report because that's something that people often don't understand. Like you said, they, they may not want to have an interaction with police. One thing I saw just anecdotally from friends was that people didn't realize they were injured until later. You know, you're biking, you're walking, you get hit by a car, you're in shock, right? And, you know, that was my experience years ago when I got hit bicycling. I just walked my bicycle home and then realized, wow, I'm, I'm really hurt. <laughs> I need to go to the emergency room. Um, and the driver had taken off. So there was no point in reporting it that second. But, you know, I, I did file a report, but it took some effort. I mean, I had to call the police multiple times to get them to come take my Take my report right. because I did want to be a data point, <laughs> but, but that's just me. Cause I'm a dork that way. When, when you think about, so this is, you know, this is a podcast again for MPOs. Are there, are there MPOs that are getting involved in vision zero that you have that you think of are, as good examples? There, there are many, I probably could not list them all here. I, I will start close to home. Ellen, and I, I'll say the, the Burlington Graham MPO, which is in sort of the central part of North Carolina they've been getting involved. And we're starting to see many more MPOs given the Safe Streets for All grant get involved. You may have seen that. 
In fact, we understand that our federal partners are very much encouraging regional entities like MPOs to be involved in safety planning because they, you know, a lot of transportation issues are regional issues, regional land use issues, uh, development issues, right? So I would think in, in California, there's several of them that I can think of. The Boston area MPO is, is doing fantastic work. There are so many, I probably couldn't mention all of them, but I will say what across them that I'm seeing that is really great is that they're working with the jurisdictions and coordinating with them. And these jurisdictions, I think for the most part, um, we're not really working in, in such a coordinated fashion. The MPO has really helped coordinate their activity. It's really helped them if they're developing community comprehensive plans, for instance, in the jurisdictions, then they're doing so in a coordinated fashion. They're thinking about regional development or patterns. They're thinking about how they're shifting demography, right? Are they a growing region? And they, they're going to have lots more people in the next 20 years. That's going to have an impact on the network. And we're starting to see a lot more coordination in that way. Um, so it's just uh, really wonderful to see MPOs getting more involved. And in fact, I'll just tie this back to Safe Process School again. That's another evolution we had witnessed in that program was at first, this was very much a individual school uh, program, right? And then it became kind of a school district. And then it became more regional, uh, again, in a lot of different places in the US. And we're starting to see very much that same pattern and with Vision Zero sort of coordination. And it's I think it's just sorely needed and it's just uh, really wonderful to witness as well. Yeah, I love to see that too, because there's, I just think working at the regional scale makes sense because there's so much to learn from each other. You know, like you you bring people together from, you know, the cities and the counties and the DOT and stuff and, and people have different information and they've tried different things and they can say this worked, this didn't. Let's try this. Let's do that. I think that I think that bringing together of the minds, while not always easy, is really helpful to, to to share this work. So you mentioned safe streets and roads for all. That's one of the many USDOT initiatives that's 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 going on right now. They're addressing safety, and they're trying to focus on on data as well. I had the pleasure of writing a safe route, a safe uh, safe streets and roads for all application. Uh, for implementation, fingers crossed that one gets funded, but there was a lot of data involved in that. Moving toward, as you said, the safe system approach, what's what's your take on how well that's going, SS4A? Oh, well, it's just starting, right? right? We have, I think, that first round from maybe, what, two years ago, uh, I think was just shockingly successful just in terms of level of interest. When we worked just again in North Carolina, we started before SS4A. We had a, a handful of communities we were working with. SS4A, the the planning grants, because that was most the first year were planning grants, right? That sort of put on our radar a number of communities we hadn't been engaged with, we hadn't been aware of. And we then uh, engaged them. We reached out and said, hey, would you like to be part of this kind of growing coalition in the state? And we were so fortunate because they've all affirmed that, yes, we'd like to be part of that. And they've been with us since. But the fact that there is such a very obvious interest from municipalities, from regions to do this sort of planning uh, just speaks to the level of demand for this, speaks to the level of need. 
And then the fact that places like Ellen, where you are, you're, you're writing implementation grants, we're seeing far more of those as well, those, those grants. I just, I hope that the resources are used uh, for SS4A wisely. And by that, I mean on places that are really going to start address the, the staggering inequities we see in traffic injury and death, that there's more participatory work right, that there's more engagement of community, like authentic, meaningful engagement, and that there is investments in systems that are truly reliably protective. So this is not in systems where we do events that are that are cursory or that have very uh, limited impact, but that are investing in policies and built environment kind of programming that get people where they need to go and in a protective fashion. So this is things like protected bike lanes. This is things like cable median barriers so that people aren't engaged head-on crashes. Or on our rural roads, our number one fatal crash type is on our rural network. So we would, we would love to see in, in smart places, cable median barriers on the edge lines of roads. Let's, in, let's fund that sort of implementation work. So I think the way it's going remains to be seen. We don't really have lots of data on exactly what's going to be implemented, even um, what's going to be demonstrated. But I'm very, very anxious and very excited to see what's happening on the other end of this. When we start getting data, we started seeing case studies. Because um, I imagine that a lot of places, given that this approach, this SS4A is designed around experimentation, around demonstration, right? Trying things out. I would imagine that we're going to start seeing really, really innovative and effective practice that we hope we can prop up and that will diffuse and more people will, will pick up and use in their context. Well, and you mentioned those those roadway departure crashes in the rural context. And that was something when when I, again, when I was with an MPO and was looking into crash data, especially focused on on fatal crashes, that was a real surprise to me, the share of those that involved a single vehicle, often in a rural context, often late at night, early morning, the vehicle leaves the roadway, strikes, you know, a tree, something else, some other fixed object, and 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 the person or, or people inside that, that vehicle are killed. Those are, th- those crashes don't get a lot of attention especially they didn't get media. T- I had no idea the the share that the, I think they were like 40% of our faith fatalities, or at least in the rural context, it was, it was huge, but they happen in very kind of dispersed places. I mean, there were some patterns, I think, in terms of certain roadways, but, but again, there's that sort of almost random nature to it. Not quite random, but it seems like a really hard crash type to address. Is that something you guys have, have looked at at all? <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, that there's been a lot of research in this state and in many other states, a lot of a lot of places, right, have a lot of a large rural road network. So down here in the southeast, like where you are in Tennessee and where we are in North Carolina, for sure, in Georgia, you, you name the state, almost almost all of them, particularly the western states as well. Vast landscapes. It is true. Like it almost seems random, right? It, it, I think it's really a struggle. Where we've seen this really work well is, of course, outside of the U.S. and Sweden. They've developed this sort of approach. It's called the two-to-one road, where they alternate every couple of kilometers. 
um, one, one lane in one direction to two so that people are sort of alert. They have both edge line cable median barriers and, and then uh, the median barriers and then edge line barriers um, in them. Um, those have proven to be really safe uh, for the railroad network. There's a researcher, if I may, just get into just the detail a little bit from uh, Netherlands, uh, Thuis, who developed this concept of the self-explaining roads, right? Right. And this is this concept is relatively simple, right? But it's based in sort of human cognition and psychology, how we perceive environments. Like if you think of a local road that really should be about access, that road should have really low speeds, lots of traffic calming, and look a lot like other local roads, but not like roads higher in the order. In the Netherlands, they call them distributor roads, or we would call them collector roads. Collector roads all look the same in Netherlands, their distributor road network, and they don't look like highways. And right, so we have in our problem, our problem in the US a lot of times, right, is that we have local roads, arterial roads, or whatever that look sort of similar to one another. They're not differentiated. But one thing that Jan Thuas had noted is that the rural road type, if you will, is really, really hard to render self explaining. Because for a lot of times, it's more of a local function. It has more of an access function, right? And it should look local. Very narrow lanes, traffic calming. It's hard to have that exactly across an entire network. But a lot of times, they also serve as more like a distributor roads because you're just, or even highways, if you will. Because people so are going like long just, distances, yeah. Exactly. You're just trying to cover distance. Yeah. But they're not built like highways. They don't have controlled access right? Uh, they, they often have driveways off of minor roads, you know, accessing them. So I think there's going to be, we're going to have to reckon with how we invest and how we design and redesign and retrofit the rural road networks, but also on the vehicle side. How, why are we letting so, so many of these crashes that involve running off the road, they run off the road at really high speeds, mm -hmm. right? Why is that a, why is the car permitted to do that? Why is there no governance on that vehicle, right? And when they hit a fixed object, maybe we can invest in systems where that fixed object actually absorbs more of the energy, breaks away, or somehow absorbs. There's there's lots of technologies out there now that they're experimenting with. I think we should start, start looking into those so that they're not, yeah, sort of such deadly features, right, when you're hitting them at speed. But it's a, it's a gnarly problem. For sure. Yeah, we need a new type of tree. Most of the ones I've seen have, have involved trees. And it's like, is, I'm very pro right? tree. Trees are, you know, trees are a wonderful thing. Um, <laughs> they are. Indeed. But yeah, but yeah, hitting them at, at a high rate of speed is not. And that vehicle thing is so tricky because you've got to get, you know, I mean, that's that's on a whole different agency. That's on NHTSA and, and other folks. And they're, they seem very reluctant to tell the automakers what they can do. <laughs> It, Unfortunately, it's that's that's true. Yeah, yeah. And those that's, of us working at the local and regional level don't, you know, have a lot of pull there. Right. Yeah, it's true. That's yeah, us, us looking, and that that's the the issue with a safe system, right? Is that one of the principles is shared responsibility, and yeah, um, and safe vehicles is supposed to be part of that. Yeah, exactly. We need all of it. We need yeah. everyone to to uh, to be accountable to what you know their area of expertise and what they're assigned to be doing. Right, right. So are there 
are there things you're, we've talked a little bit about this, but you know, the, the data linkages with hospital data, are there other types of data or data sources that you think should be more a part of this work that more, more cities or MPOs or whoever should be more aware of or, or make better use of? Is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, definitely. One of the things I would love to see on is a, a full scale replacement of travel delay, level of service <laughs> as a performance measure for any facility of intersection, whatever, what have you, with operating speed. Uh, the there's again in the Netherlands and other places in Europe they, there's a lot published on the boundary conditions of human survivability, right? So if you think of someone that's a pedestrian who's seventy plus years of age, if they're struck at twenty miles per hour, uh, their likelihood of death is actually quite high, twenty five to thirty percent likelihood of death, depending on the the, the health of the, the individual, right? So that begs the question, when you have, when almost half of all crashes involve no braking at all, and people are struck at these speeds, what kind of operating speed are we going to have where we have mixed traffic pedestrians, vehicles, as our population ages, right? So to me, speed data is something that should be collected everywhere that's possible, everywhere that's feasible. And then we, the data around the sort of understandability, the self-explainingness of roads. There are some key things we can look for that, that I think would be very helpful. So of course, sight lines is one of them. Can you even see people around a corner, that sort of thing? But also just the, the basically the width of view for the driver. If they have a large, a wide range of, of the field, then that's going to encourage speed. So what's our kind of enclosure look like, right? What kind of features in the environment are going to cue the driver to naturally expect people, children, kids? And I don't mean let's fix MUTCD. We definitely need to do that. The Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices. Right. But this is not going to be fixed through signage. This is not going to be fixed through text-based information for people. It's got to be right. natural in the environment. Does this make sense? Does this, does this environment invite speed or does this invite people to be more aware of their environment? I think there's some key things we can look for in, in there. There's lots of good research on that and, and variable uh, resources for that as well. And yeah, exactly. Just speed for sure. Anything else that would be tied? I think one of the things we can do if we want to draw more people into this realm, right, we understand that to get to actually start see change and have that manifest, we need far more people involved. We need far more people to care about this. I think one way for that is to add some metrics to our toolbox, add some metrics on noise, which we know is noise pollution can be a health hazard, add some around air quality had some around air ambient temperatures, you know, shade trees can really help sort of lower those. If more people, I think, saw how, if you say in a suburban location, replaced a traffic signal with a roundabout, how that can improve air quality, reduce serious crashes significantly, as well as reduce noise, involved with braking, et cetera, and accelerating. I think 
they would get involved. They would, they might say, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't realize that my work in environmental health and community health actually intersected with road safety, you know, that sort of thing. I'd love to see more of that. But if really, if it really came down to a single metric, I would promote, it would be speed because kinetic energy, David Ederer wrote this in a piece around the safe system pyramid recently and totally agree. Speed is the pathological agent, right? That's yeah. the thing that is that when that enters, when uh, we have an impact speed, it's a blunt force trauma to people. And that's what that's causing the harm. We really need to take a look at that and really privilege operating speeds as as the metric. That's interesting because it, it seems like that circles back to the vehicle issue too. It feels like our vehicles ought to be, I mean, you talked about you know governance of speeds. That's a conversation around whether vehicles should have some sort of speed governors that keep them keep them going a reasonable speed, but then also just to collect that data. You know, when a when a plane crashes, there's an enormous amount of data collected around what what exactly was going on in the seconds and minutes leading up to that. And I, I don't know if vehicles, newer vehicles are collecting that data, but I don't think people, even if they are, people don't have access to that. Police don't necessarily have the resources to get at that. What exact speed was it going? You mentioned the braking. Was there braking involved? If not, why not? All that, all that good stuff. It seems like there's a lot to get into, but the, you know, operating speed being the metric is an interesting one. I hadn't heard that before. I, I know there are places that are trying to shift from level of service to VMT as a metric to vehicle miles travel. Is that, is that something that you think is a, is a positive? I would say so. Yeah. I think that does keep a focus on mobility of level of VMT. So it could or could not relate to safety uh, depending, but if it, if the VMT is in the spirit of sort of shifting to sort of lower impact modes, like like biking, walking, that sort of thing. I think it could definitely be a great thing, for sure. Yeah, we I've, we've seen that as well. Like in traffic impact analyses, for instance, right? When you're looking at development and saying, okay, how do we train and change sort of our roadway network to accommodate this new development? In California, they they sort of codified that, right, and said, hey, we're going to look at VMT. Let's let's not have a significant increase of VMT given this development. I think it's probably a good step in the direction. It doesn't tell us too much, though, whether or not someone will die or not trying to access that development. Um, so we'd like to see a little bit more around how do we protect people? You know, that, that, that we see that as sort of a foundation. Once we have people protected, then we can start talking about other goals that we might have, right? Around like, okay, are the travel times reliable? Yes, it seems like they are, right? Uh, are we, are, do people have meaningful choice? Exactly. So like, are they, are we reducing VMT, you know, and this dependence on automobility? So yeah, I, I think it's, it's a wonderful alternative. It's just not always, it could be, but not always aligned with like a safe system. Right. And to me, yeah, the VMT is telling because it, it does. It helps you understand if people actually have a choice of, of getting in their car or not every day. And I, I think that's a huge part of the safety issue, too, is like in most places in this country, people don't have a meaningful choice. So if you are someone who is maybe aging out of being a safe driver, if you are someone who, you know, otherwise has a, a disability of some sort or just, you know, there are people who are just 
who are just bad drivers. No one will raise their hand and admit to that. You know, everyone thinks they're an above average driver. But, you know, there's a systemic thing of just people don't have a choice. And so they get behind the wheel, whether they should or not, whether they're struggling with addiction or, or whatever's going on with them. And we need to give people a meaningful choice, as you said, which I, I like that phrase. You mentioned traffic impact studies, you know, as a fo- having a focus on something other than just level of service. Another thing I've seen with traffic impact studies is they often trigger, um, you know, changes to the built environment. Like they say, okay, you've got to add a turn lane here. You've got to add, often it's a signal here. I would love to see the default being at a roundabout, you know, that you're going to do a roundabout instead of a signal as, as the default. Are you aware of places that are, that are moving in that direction? You know, that are like moving away from signalization. Is that what right, you're asking? Right, yeah. right. Oh gosh. I think the state of Maryland does seem to have almost like a roundabout default and their yeah. developmental plan policy. So they, they will assume that a roundabout will be there unless the developer or whomever the construction agency can say, can justify needing something else right. like a signal. That's definitely one very clear example. But I think we, we're starting to see in colleagues like Tab Combs at UNC and, and others um, have looked at the evolution of traffic impact analysis or traffic impact studies. There is very much an interest among those who conduct these sorts of studies who shift to something akin to what you're saying, Ellen. They would like to see less of a focus on level of service and, and capacity, right? And more on access, more on VMT reduction, more safety. I think right now the tools haven't caught up to that interest, if you will. Right now there's no existing tool, uh, right? There's You can sort of maybe make your own tool that would give you the information right. that you're looking for, but there's no sort of prepackaged tool that'll say, hey, this will improve safety this will improve access and give people that meaningful choice and mode. Yeah. There's nothing like that. Well, I think we're giving our listeners a lot to think about, but maybe, maybe one challenge I'll give folks, if you're, if you're with an MPO or you're with a city, look at your traffic impact analysis guidelines and see if signal is in there or if roundabout is in there, or, and maybe you can replace signal with roundabout as the default. Again, it may not work in every situation, but it, but it, but it as the default. Okay. I've got one last one last question for you, Seth, and this is a, a very personal one. E-bikes, are you a proponent, a detractor, a user, neutral? Where are you on e-bikes? <laughs> oh, you're trying to find me where I am on the scale. Okay. Well, I have dabbled. I'm a dabbler of e-bikes. <laughs> <laughs> I've used them and found them to be really a lot of fun. Yeah. I am very excited to see right, the, the sort of growing interest in e-bikes. Uh, they They're the number to... one selling electric vehicle in this country. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing to see, right? You love <laughs> yeah. to see it. Actually, out of University of Tennessee, Knoxville, I know like Dr. Chris Cherry and others have looked at the physical activity acquisition associated with e-bikes, and they found that they're very similar to your acoustic or more traditional bicycle, right? People tend to go longer. And I, I would say anecdotally, I, I've seen that. I do bike commute, and I bike to run errands and everything, and I've, I'm seeing far more in this area of e-bikes. The bike shop owners I know are telling me that they're, they have people that haven't ridden bikes in, in decades and that are buying bikes. You start seeing kids being commuted to school on e-bikes. I think it's a wonderful thing. In fact, 
I think cargo e-bikes especially have the potential in some applications to replace maybe even vehicles, at least certain trips for vehicles, maybe even vehicles themselves. Who knows? I think we should definitely incentivize the use of, of these e-bikes like that. Yeah. So you don't, you don't own one. You don't use one regularly, but you've tried them out. I do not. I'm more of a traditionalist. That's just yeah. me, but I certainly support sure. them for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm a user myself. I'm an owner. I'm very excited. Wonderful. And, it, and it, it just, again, anecdotally, it got me riding more. It got me riding, commuting more frequently to work and riding more frequently because I live in a place with a lot of topography. I have a, a kiddo who I like to have bike with me and a tag along behind, and it's a lot easier to, to ride with her up hills and, and places like that when I've got that electric assist. And, uh, and it's a ton of fun. It just really is. It's so much fun to just be able to zip along. Yeah, I totally see it. I've, yeah. I've experienced it and I witness it. People yeah. seem to be very pleased. Yeah. So there's another action step for our listeners. If you haven't tried an e-bike, <laughs> give it a shot because it, it will maybe has a chance to change your life. Seth, I want to thank you for, for talking with me today and for sharing your insight with our listeners. All, you know, hopefully there's more than a handful of them. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Ellen. It was a pleasure.